Hello, I'm Rachel Lyman, and we want to welcome you to our 2023 Interfaith Connection podcast. This is a Spiritual Life Center monthly podcast dedicated to the exploration of faith traditions that promote love. Rev. Dave Lyman is my partner in marriage and also my senior minister partner for our Interfaith Explorers organization. We're both so excited to be starting our third year of podcasts on this grand adventure. Our goal this year is to explore and make new friends at faith communities in the greater Sacramento region where interfaith continues to grow. We also want to encourage your feedback as you participate in interfaith events and field trips, read our newsletter and listen to our monthly podcasts. So as we say each year, buckle up and get ready for the exciting year ahead. So welcome to the May 2023 Interfaith Connection podcast. I can't believe this is our 29th podcast. And I will say this online that um, in the last three years, uh, the podcast people sent us a notice that a thousand people have listened to our podcast. So we're so excited. And I know a thousand of you out there will listen to this one as well. So we're happy about that. So this morning, we're so happy to have with us Reverend Dr. Portia Hopkins. And um, I'm going to be talking a lot about her, but uh, I listened to her on an Interfaith Council of Greater Sacramento panel discussion. And I thought that all the answers she gave and her story about her uh, journey to becoming a minister was just really very amazing and wonderful. So we asked her to be a member of our podcast here, and she said yes. So welcome, Reverend Portia. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. So we like to start with uh, our, our having our listeners know a little bit about someone before we get into the subject matter. And um, so uh, first of all, I will say it's Reverend Dr. Portia Hopkins. She's a chaplain and program director. Belfry Lutheran Episcopal Campus Minister at UC Davis, California. So I apologize, I didn't even say that yet. So uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood and teenage years, and um, maybe what are some, what were some of the interests and favorite things you'd like to do during mm. that time? Yeah, I wasn't raised in a particularly religious family. When I was a very small child, we went to church, but it was more of a social thing. Kind of everybody went to church back then. Uh, and my family didn't really have any particular faith practice. When I look back now, I think I can say that I always had sort of a connection with the sacred. Um, I can remember doing things like lying on the floor and watching the dust motes and the light over my head and having sort of a sense of being a small part of something much bigger than myself, but also being held by it. And now I would put God language to that uh, and, and definitely language of the sacred. I didn't when I was a kid, it was just the way life was. And so um, I, I would say that I never, I never really didn't sort of connect with God or with the sacred or with um, the, the, those parts of the universe. Um, 
it wasn't until I was actually a teenager and could kind of start making my own choices that I decided to explore Christianity. So I got a Bible and I read the Bible all the way through, um, which I quite frankly recommend for anybody in Western culture, whether they have a faith basis for it or not, because so much of literature and poetry and art is actually based on that. So it's just good to sort of have all of those, all of those sorts of things. Uh, and then I started going to church myself and um, made a commitment to become a Christian. Uh, obviously, like everybody else, I've had ups and downs in what faith looked like for me in the many, many years since that period of time. Um, but uh, I, I think that 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 always knowing that there was God and always knowing that God was good uh, has been a pretty constant part of my life. So did you have a, a particular place that, well, as a child, like you say, you're not really cognizant of a lot of things at that time, but did you like to be inside or outside or did you find, you know, this, the sacred outside and inside or any particular I, sacred places for you? Yeah, um, I loved to be tucked up in a big chair with a book from uh, the time I was a small child. And I've always been a very avid reader. And I've always, again, now I would say that I always sort of found God in uh, in in great stories uh, and in poetry and in the way words um, are used. So that works for me anywhere. I don't necessarily need to be outside or inside, but I've always loved the outdoors. I've always loved the ocean in particular. There's something just grand about uh, the, the the waves and uh, and seeing sort of eternity in what the shore looks like. Um, and I love giant trees. And so uh, being under redwoods and things like that, I grew up in the Bay Area. So fortunately, all of nature was very close and my family liked to get outdoors. And so we spent a lot of summer days uh, up one place or another. And um, and I think, again, that was always a place that I could encounter God. That's wonderful. And so that's a wonderful segue that you love to read where you ended up, I'm going to talk a little bit about the education, uh, your educational journey, 1994 to 2019, you were became a pre professor of English yes. at, at William Jessup University of Rockland. And then, and it looks like 2003 to 2007, you earned a PhD in transformative learning from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Yep. You're also, uh, since 2004, for 18 years, have been a freelance writer and editor. And in your bio, you say, quote, you are a wannabe writer, lapsed academic, and bemused priest. Yep. So I, that, I love that. So now with all, everyone knows what, wow, does she have education and a wonderful experience background. Tell us about that transformative journey you went through from educator, writer, editor, to becoming a priest. How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, when you look backwards, you see things that you don't see while you're going through them. Um, I was always drawn to literature, uh, to poetry, to, to novels, to um, really good writing. 
And I think that that was also being drawn to the sacred. Uh, I think that if all truth is God's truth, then whatever shows up that is true is sort of pulling us and leading us to God. And I had that experience very profoundly with literature. So I don't think it's a surprise that I ended up becoming a professor of literature. What I discovered when I came ready to do a PhD is that I wanted a non-traditional doctoral program. What I was really interested in wasn't um, sort of narrowing and learning more. Uh, my, my actual academic specialty is uh, 16th and 17th century devotional poetry. And so, you know, I, I did a lot of work in that realm. But when I came to do doctoral work, what I realized I was really interested in was what difference does it make if we read? Uh, and so I wanted to pursue how readers find meaning, find transformation, find wholeness in their lives through reading. And so that was what I actually did my doctoral work on. So um, I did that at the California Institute of Integral Studies in humanities and transformative learning instead of in a more sort of traditional academic program, because what I was interested in is what what are how do all of these things connect how is our life changed and how is our life transformed as we read what's it like to have a book talk to us the way a good friend might talk to us uh or way the way maybe that the voice of the spirit talks to us and what happens when we respond to that in different ways uh i really enjoyed uh getting to sort of explore that and work in that and um i think it changed my teaching uh, i always wanted to teach students to experience literature with their whole selves and to let it talk to them and to have it mean something to them. I mean, you teach them how to, uh, I don't know, look at the symbols in a work of literature or deconstruct a, a poem. You teach them those things, uh, how to do theory. Um, but what I really wanted was for the words that they read that were sort of healthy and life-giving to center into them and, and to change them. And uh, so that was sort of the way that even my teaching was at that time. So uh, again, it's probably not a surprise that I ended up at a Christian college to be able to do that, um, to be able to do that kind of work. And honestly, uh, again, looking back now, I think that was always a call to me to... Um, not necessarily to ordained ministry, but to sort of uh, ministry as, as a way of living my life that uh, I always wanted to help people be transformed and be better and be whole and know the sacred and have comfort in that and find peace and find grace. And uh, so it, it it's, while it's kind of an odd shift to go from being an English professor to being a priest, it makes a lot of sense because I've actually had several of my former students tell me, oh, no, you were always a minister. You were always a chaplain. You were always a priest. You just were doing it in a classroom. You're not doing anything different now. And uh, I don't know that I saw that at the time, but I think I can see that now as I look backwards a little bit. It's so true. And when you think about history and the illiterate people that finally learn how to read. Yeah. It does transform their lives. Yeah. And it yeah. moves them into a higher level of, yeah. of a pr profession or life uh, ability to, you know, instead of just meeting the, the basic Maslow yeah. <laughs> hierarchy yeah. of needs, you know, they can go a lot higher into um, and, and, and in look at the spiritual, have time to, incorporate all that and I know that every time I read a book it does change me uh, even if I don't agree with half of it or I don't 
I sleep through part of it. Um, there's something that in every book I've read uh, that makes that brings me to another level. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you're very right on with that. So that's that's amazing. And it's so true. Uh, I have one friend that calls, calls me a minister and I'm not. <laughs> I, I thought about uh, becoming an interfaith minister at one time and the circumstances and all just weren't right for me. So I thought, well, I'll just continue on doing my my interfaith work. And I don't know why I do, but I just do it. I, I'm like you. I love people. I love to learn, you know, so yes. there's something that draws you into that. And, you know, that you're going to find God in that, all that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's yeah. our work to connect people and teach them to understand and appreciate and, and uh, respect other faiths and so forth. So, yeah, it's um, God's up there, you know, and he goes, oh, they finally got it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's pretty amazing. So, so I want to go back to that March 22nd, um, exploring the sacred panel you were on. Yes. And they had certain questions they asked of all the panelists, and I loved all the answers you gave. So I, I thought, I'm going to ask her to repeat, if, as, as, you know, as best you can, some of your answers on that. So one of the questions was, and the, the topic was faith, a life of meaning. Well, exactly. Yep. Gosh, that was a good yep. one for you. And my husband, Reverend Dave Lyman, is an interfaith minister, and he found you uh, <laughs> after interviewing... Uh, I forgot her name, the gal who's uh, uh, with the Interfaith uh, Council in Davis. Yes. And he yeah. interviewed her, and then you came on the scenes. I call it people coming across our radar. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. So, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so um, I said to Dave after listening to that, wow, I'd love to have Portia on a podcast, and here you are. So we're happy with that. So anyway, the, one of the first questions was, what are things you love about faith? Yeah, I think for me, um, I find faith sustaining in uh, the hard things in life and a way to recognize and understand and be grateful for the joyful things in life, or maybe even a way to be grateful for the hard things in life. It just sort of pulls things together for me. Uh, I Life is hard. Every person has hard things happen in their life. I, I think uh, one of the sayings uh, that that uh, some traditions have is that pain is uh, unavoidable, suffering is is a choice. Uh, and so, life, every human life, does have painful things. If you love, you're going to lose. Even if you have a pet, we all know how devastating it is when yeah. when pet has a shorter lifespan than we do and dies, much less the losses that we have with people, with places we love, with things that we love to do. Um, and for me, it's not that faith necessarily makes it clear or answers the question about why things happen. I think some things, there just is not an answer to why they happen. I think they are so horrible and so awful that, that we really um, don't do justice to the event to try and come up with reasons for why they happen. So I don't think that that faith does that for me. Um, what faith does do is it holds me through those things and then lets me continue to reach out and connect with other people instead of sort of drawing into my own pain world and just mm -hmm. um, losing touch. So uh, 
I think that that connecting with God, connecting with the sacred and and with uh, the way love works in the universe is uh, is a really important part of faith. It reminds me on bad days when I'm angry about something or sad about something. Uh, it reminds me that I am not the end all and be all or the center of all things that there is. All, I know who knows there's a whole giant universe out there and that I can choose to respond with love to the best of my ability. None of us loves perfectly. Uh, we never will. Uh, but I can choose to love with what I have and grow in my capacity to love God. I mean, the central tenet of the Christian faith is love God, love your neighbor. You wouldn't necessarily know that from looking at the way uh, Christians are often <laughs> sort of portrayed in the media and portray themselves, quite frankly. I think I think uh, we've lost touch with that. But that is really the central tenet of some version in nearly every faith tradition. Uh, love others the way that you love yourself, which means you love yourself. It means you love God. It means that you love other people uh, and, and use the events of life and the encounters that you have, the things that are hard, the things that are great to continue to grow that capacity to love and connect with other people. So yeah, that's, that's an important central part of faith for me. Oh, you just answered a lot of my questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we're, you know, most people know my husband is has multiple health challenges, and now we have a end of life uh, challenge ahead of us. Oh, is, uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm, you know, sure, I'm, I'm, absolutely. You know, I'm, why, you know, asking yeah. why. So, but yeah, yeah uh, just um, just the way you put that, it's it's so true because we we kind of want to just go into our pity pot, you know, and stay there. But but then you think about all the people who have far worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, not to compare, but just uh, and then bring us back to focus on our our inner faith, our inner strength, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to listen to this podcast more than once. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I think the thing faith does is it doesn't nullify our pain. It doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't yeah. be hurt about that. Or, oh, you know, it doesn't even say that that thing that you just sort of like other people have it worse. It, it doesn't. It says, nope, what you're going through is what you're going through. And God is there with you in this. Uh, and you it like all will be well as Julian of Norwich says all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well it doesn't mean it will be easy it doesn't mean it'll be the way that we want it to be but that there's a deep goodness at the center of all things and um, we can sort of endure the very hard things and and grow into them and grow through them. It doesn't make them not be hard. It yeah. just means that we can we can survive them and that something wonderful happens in that in that surviving of them. And also that the life of those that we lose goes on. Uh, it, I, the, That's the, I, I believe that a human soul is immortal. Uh, and and so I believe that there is a part of their energy and part of their life that goes on. I certainly would say to people of any faith that a part of the departed goes on in us as we remember them and as we love them and as we've let their lives change ours. And so even death isn't, isn't the end of all things. It's just a horribly grief filled, difficult, uh, 
torturous, tormenting passage. That's true. Yes. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. So thank you for all of those profound, that profound wisdom, really. Um, so one of the other questions they asked was, can you speak of a special moment of faith that you've experienced that goes beyond logic? Well, I'd have to say that being called to be a priest definitely <laughs> went beyond logic. <laughs> you know, I, I had been um, having a sense for quite some time. I mean, if I look back in my journals, probably for 10 or 15 years or so before I got a call to priesthood, I had this feeling that there was there was just something more that I could do, that I was meant to do, that I was able to do. Uh, and I didn't know what it was. And, um, and so I just kind of stayed aware of that. And I experimented with different things. I worked as a, a volunteer hospital chaplain for a while. And I thought, okay, that's not it exactly. I did some um, consulting and academic mediation, which was great to be able to do when people are entrenched in uh, conflict mm -hmm. with each other. It's great to be able to go in and say, actually, you have more that you agree about than about you disagree. Let's talk about that and see if we can find a way forward. And I love doing that. But again, mm, that wasn't quite the thing. And um, I kind of given up on church at that point. Church wasn't particularly working for me. And so I still had a, a faith and faith practices uh, that are deeply Christian, but church is, itself wasn't particularly working for me. And so uh, when I visited a, a Church of England church when I was in England, uh, and I was midnight mass at Bath Abbey uh, on Christmas Eve of the year mm -hmm. 2010 mm -hmm. and talk about, you know, a palpable sense of the sacred, at least for me, uh, you know, with a choir singing and you're in a beautiful abbey and it is like you're, you're ushering in uh, the time between Christmas Eve and, and Christmas Day in a setting with other people. And that I thought, oh, I realized church can't always be like that. But I thought this is something that I could learn to enjoy. So I started attending an Episcopal church, but never really expected to have a call to ordain ministry in that. I'd never thought of myself as wanting to be ordained or wanting to be a priest or wanting to move into ministry. And so um, my sense of call that was kind of, uh, I describe it as like a two by four to the head. God <laughs> was not able to be subtle with me at that point. Because I was, you know, I just wasn't seeing a thing that, that God was trying to show me. And so, um, when I finally sort of realized, oh, <laughs> wow, maybe being a priest, what would that be like? Uh, and then began to sort of more fully explore that and move into that. Um, again, not at all uh, an intuitive thing for somebody who's a college professor to move toward. Uh, I loved being in a college classroom and I loved teaching and I loved engaging with college students. And I thought, oh no, you know, if I become a priest, I'll be in a church and, and I won't get to do this thing that I love. Well, of course, sort of responding to that call and continuing to move forward and listening to the different ways that God was sort of um, summoning me into this and having a lot of life changes. I mean, I went back to school again and spent four years getting a seminary degree and spent learning uh, about the Episcopal church tradition and what it would be like to, to work in this. Uh, 
And then I was ordained and was in a church and I loved the church that I was a part of, but I never felt called to working in a church. And so there was, there was always like a little, like that sandpapery rub in the work <laughs> that I was doing and uh, loved the people very much, but just didn't, didn't find that this is, was the thing. So when um, the job at the Belfry opened up and was announced, I immediately thought, okay, I need to apply for this job because here, maybe all the parts of me, the part that loves working with college students and teaching and being in an educational environment and the part of me that is saying, doggone it, you're a priest. That, that's the yeah. priest part of this thing, because it was just a surprise to me uh, to sort of find a life in this thing. And all of those things kind of came together. And um, fortunately, the Belfry Board decided to hire me. And I've loved every minute of the work that I have gotten to do. It really does sort of fit all the parts of me. But what what a shock. That was not something <laughs> I, some people know. I have friends who knew when they were children that they were meant to be priests. Right. And they needed to figure out what it was like to work that out and find the right time for it. That would not have been me. And uh, so it really wasn't until probably the day of my priestly ordination that I kind of thought, okay, I'm actually doing this thing. Uh, we'll see what God does with it. Um, but it took, a, it took a long time for me to even get used to the idea um, of, of ordination or of a priestly calling. Sweet. Well, there was one other question I was going to ask, but I think I'm going to sneak that in later. So you mentioned the belfry. For yes. people who have no idea, what are, what are you talking about? <laughs> The Belfry yeah. organization, what, what is it about? Is it a church? Is it a program? And where are you doing it? Uh, yeah, tell us all about that. Oh, yeah. So the Belfry has been a, a, a Lutheran Episcopal campus ministry, progressive campus ministry uh, to UC Davis for many years. And um, we're in a little house on A Street right across from the campus. And um, we just have a living room there where students can come and sit and hang out, uh, comfy couches. We keep snacks and coffee and drinks on hand. Uh, students come and play games with each other. They uh, take Zoom classes or do study groups uh, or just take naps on the couch. Uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> little spot for college Safe students. <laughs> yeah. And we have a chapel. It's a, it's the probably what was two bedrooms in the back of the house are converted into a chapel. And on Thursday evenings, we meet there and do a short Eucharist service that's very sort of interactive and everybody gets to be a part of it. And then uh, we, I leave and go into the kitchen and put a few things together while the students um, turn the chapel into a table and chairs and uh, everybody comes back and we sit and have dinner with each other and have just conversations and a lovely time with one another. So um we are part of the Interfaith Campus Council at UC Davis, which is how I became connected with you through the ways that these things happen. And so we we have uh, an interfaith group that that the campus ministers for the interfaith group the camp uh, meet together every month on Zoom, and we plan events with one another. Um, some big events that all of the campus ministries are invited to, and then other ones where it's just maybe two different ministries that sort of connect on something. Uh, and it's great to be a progressive campus ministry because there are a lot of Christian campus ministries that are 
not fully uh, affirming and welcoming of LGBTQ plus students. And it's great to be one of the places that is an absolutely safe and sacred space um, for all students together. Uh -huh. And everyone is welcome to come in. Uh, we have actually community members sometimes that come uh, and worship with us and have dinner with us. You don't necessarily have to be a student. And so um, I just enjoy sort of getting to curate and tend a little sacred space right there in the middle of Davis. And then this past year, uh, we decided that we wanted to expand to Sacramento City College. Um, city colleges are, uh, boy, students, uh, it's not easy to be a community college student in, especially in this time post-COVID, because so there's so many more pressures and a lot of classes are online and it's hard to find community and they don't get four years to make friends and they aren't in a dorm where they can meet people. Yeah. And so we decided we wanted to do some outreach to Sacramento City College. And, and so I've, we spent the last year doing that at least one day a week over at Sacramento City College. Our most successful thing that we did was we did a series of three giant barbecues outside uh, the church that, that I am associated with, All Saints Episcopal Church, is right across the street from the community college. And they let us use their front yard to uh, do a big barbecue. And so we just went over to campus and told students, hey, we're doing this barbecue. Everybody that wants to can come and eat. And um, the first time that we did that in March, we served 100 meals that day. And wow. we heard from students things like, oh, this is the first thing I've eaten today, or I haven't eaten since yesterday, or this might be all that I get today. And they enjoyed sitting around. We asked them, you know, how can we, how can we help? How can we meet your needs? And they would say, oh, this a place to gather, a place to eat, a place just to sit for a few minutes and have friends and talk before we go back into what life is like. So that's been a great gift to get to expand the Belfry out to, uh, to a new student population. That's wonderful. And when I did some research on the Belfry, um, there were three events that I thought were fascinating, Interfaith Movable Feast, mm -hmm. Harmony Week, and Interfaith Games. Can yes. you tell a little bit about is that is that just your group or do you uh, connect with other groups on campus or how does it all that work? That is the work of the Interfaith Campus Council. And so there are about a half a dozen different small campus ministries uh, that, as I said, connect regularly. So um, we have a, there's a Jewish ministry, Halal House. There's a Baha'i Campus Ministry. Um, there's another progressive Christian ministry, the Catholic ministry connects with us. And then, um, we're, uh, we have, uh, some students that are beginning to form a Hindu campus ministry group. And we're kind of the core of this. Other people are invited. Anyone's invited to participate if they want to, but we're the sort of planning core of this. And every fall quarter we do, uh, the movable feast, which is a progressive dinner. And so we start at one of the campus ministry sites with hors d'oeuvres and mocktails, and then move to another place for soup and salad and a place for a main course, uh, for dessert, sometimes hot drinks. Uh, sometimes we do a service project um, in association with that. So it's fun. The Belfry is at one end of, of where the campus ministries are. So we always get either hors d'oeuvres or dessert, depending on the year. We're always going to be either the first stop or the last stop. And so students gather and, and it's just a great evening. Um, and then in the winter quarter, uh, in, co in connection with inter uh, with um, the U 
UN Interfaith Harmony Week, we do our own Interfaith Harmony Week. And we have just a series of different events that can be conversations, uh, they can be sort of activities, again, service projects. Every year it's a little different. Uh, and uh, so we have, we'll have an interfaith conversation. This past year, I, I did a labyrinth walk, a candlelight labyrinth walk at a labyrinth in Davis that's very easily accessible to campus. And it was a freezing cold evening. And so being out there after dark, students were literally wrapped in blankets to walk the labyrinth uh, with by candlelight. And even so, it felt really sacred. So uh -huh. uh, that's a that's a, a great week. And then in the spring, we do uh, what have been interfaith games. This time we shifted it and we're calling it interfaith picnic because it is uh, very, it's going to be picnic based. So it's actually this Thursday, just uh, later this week, we will be meeting outdoors and uh, each of the Campus Ministries is contributing uh, different food so that we can feed people. Uh, and we will have a bunch of different lawn games set up. We've got a cornhole and a, um, a vertical golf set set up and just a bunch. Everybody's bringing outdoor oh, things to do. And we're just going to let it be a little brain break for everybody where they can connect with people they haven't met before. Um, these are really great things because students that are coming uh, have different faith bases and they're ready to talk about them. And so they're not shy about, about asking one another, well, what about your faith works for you? Or what do you love about it? Or what are the questions that you still have? Or what does this look like? And I love just sort of walking around at any of these events and eavesdropping on the different conversations that students are having with one another. There was one evening that we had an interfaith conversation dinner and it happened to be at the Belfry. It was sponsored by the Baha'i group. Uh, and we had dinner at our usual time of seven o'clock. Well, finally at 10 o'clock that night, I needed to go home because I was tired and there were still students sitting in our chapel talking with each other about what their different faiths were and exploring and asking questions. And I just went in and told them, I need to leave. If you could just lock up when you go, you're welcome to stay here and talk as long as you want. Uh, and just seeing students so engaged with other people who are different than them uh, and wanting to learn and coming with curiosity instead of coming in with some kind of agenda or thinking that they are right. Uh, it's just tremendous work. And I love getting to know that these students are going to graduate and be out there in the world. And that is the attitude that they're going to have in their work lives, in their own spiritual lives, in their family lives, that we're going to be open and curious and loving. And that is going to be at the center of what we do. It's just great to see that with young people. Yeah, I was listening to uh, uh, one of the podcasts and one of the, uh, the podcasts, it was a panel discussion, another ICGS, and there was a lady and she said, um, when you learn to love yourself, then people around you will learn to love themselves and then they'll learn to love somebody. And then it's a ping pong yes. effect. And that's basically what we're here for, I guess. Yes. So before we, because uh, I, I hope you will encourage advertisers so that people who, students who aren't familiar with the Belfry will uh, be able to find out more. So yes. you have a website and do you have that address for the Belfry? Yeah, the Belfry's address is www.thebelfry.org. It's quite easy. So if you even just Google Belfry Davis, it will pop up. There isn't another Belfry uh, in Davis. So uh, we're, we're pretty easy to find. And then, and I asked you too, if, if uh, students have uh, questions or 
uh, want to get in touch with you somehow, can yes. you give them your uh, email address? Yeah, students or community members. Uh, again, okay. I have all sorts of folks drop by the Belfry. So my email is pastor at thebelfry.org. Again, quite easy. And it's on the website uh, too. You can find that. Yeah, I have students come by all the time and just sort of knock on the door of the little house and say, like, what is this place and what is it that you do? And some of them come in with um, just kind of questions like, I'll, I will have students that come from no faith background at all and will ask very, well, what is Christianity? Uh, and, and what, you know, what, like, what happens in this whole thing? And, uh, and what would it mean for me or students who come from religious trauma backgrounds who have come from, oh. from faith traditions that have actually harmed them and hurt their souls. And uh, they kind of want to know where, you know, is there still a God or do I need to give up on this whole thing? Uh, and so, yeah, uh, it's great to be able to 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 do that work and have we say that our space is safe um, and that it is brave because everybody has a voice and that is peaceful because students can take naps on the couch and that it is also sacred because we um, we recognize that God is in all things and connects with us in different ways. So, yeah, please, anybody that would like come by our space. You're very welcome. Well, th thank you for that. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is uh, tell us about a typical day, but rather than do that, uh, in May, um, it's been in the news that there were three stabbings in Davis, which is a tragedy, and one of the students uh, was six weeks shy of graduating from UC Davis. Yes. And um, so tell me in your work uh how how have you become involved in that and uh when it happened and now are you still continuing to minister to students or yeah uh, you know um it's great to talk about all the fun and the learning and the connection that we have in a campus ministry but there's also a, a real importance to a faith community when a community in, or individuals encounter tragedy. And so being able to be this safe, welcoming space for students and community members in a time of, of really unimaginable horror in Davis, uh, it was it we had a very difficult week because of the losses and the tragedies. Uh, the first person who was stabbed was um, a guy they call the compassion guy because he was always out on the corner in Davis at the compassion bench that he had uh, managed to arrange for the city to have. And he would sit out there and ask people what compassion meant to them. And he wrote it into a book uh, and he would speak on compassion. And to think that that is the person who was killed. I mean, of course, huge questions bubbled up for students, right? Why, how could something so horrible happen to a good person? And does it, what difference does it even make to be a good person if this sort of, if this sort of thing can happen to you and where is God and why does God let that happen? Um, and then the second student stabbing tragically was the student that you mentioned, Kareem, who was actually on his bike home from being, uh, receiving an award on campus. He was biking back home to his parents' house when he was attacked in a park at only about nine o'clock in the evening. It wasn't like he was out, uh, you know, very late or anything like that uh, and, and brutally stabbed in the park. 
Um, and he happened to be, he wasn't a student that came out to the Belfry uh, for any of our worship events, but he'd been out for different parties and he'd connected. He, my students knew him. Uh, in fact, some of them knew him quite well and he was a friend. And so you can only imagine then what happens uh, with that kind of grief and sorrow and anger and then the terrible fear, because of course, if it could happen to those two people, it could happen to anybody. And nobody knew who was doing the stabbing or why. There was no pattern to it. There was nothing that we could say, oh, if we just don't do this, we'll be safe. Um, everybody felt a, a, a terrible sense of danger. By the time the third stabbing happened, um, the, that person was not killed, uh, but was severely injured in the stabbing and they're recovering well. Um, by the time that happened, students had already sort of gathered together. My students had gathered together to create uh, sort of safe connections for each other. So the rule was nobody goes alone. If you need to go to a class, if you need to go even in the middle of the day, when I would take my dog for a walk, somebody would go with me to take my dog for a walk because we just didn't know what was going on. Um, and students made sure that, that if anybody was going to have to be out after dark, that somebody would be giving them a ride and that they checked on one another, made sure everybody got home safely. Um, the Belfry actually students organized uh, for the Belfry to be a safe place for unhoused people because two of the people who had been stabbed were unhoused folks in Davis. And so they arranged for the Belfry to open up um, for three nights that week until the until the alleged killer was um, was caught and arrested so that we could have people sleeping in indoors. We didn't have we don't have a luxurious space. We didn't have cots or or even blankets or pillows, but we had a space where they could bring their bedrolls and they could stay inside. And uh, we then it was students that set that up um, and the Belfry then maintained it. So this this having a space that students recognize as a place where they could come when they're feeling tremendous sorrow or fear or just not even knowing what they're feeling because they are so overwhelmed. Um, and then when the alleged killer was arrested and it turned out that he too was a student uh, and had been up until two days before he'd been academically dismissed and that perhaps is what triggered these horrible series of events for them to think how does one of our own, somebody we might have been in a class with, how does this happen to them? How, do, how, how, what, what happens inside somebody that lets this happen? Uh, obviously, the processing of all that is not over. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we certainly will be continuing to sort of be there for one another, uh, process grief and loss and fear and anger and the big questions about where is God in all of this. Um, the Belfry has actually sort of in this time, uh, moved beyond just serving and connecting with students into connecting with the community, because honestly, in a time of terrible tragedy like this, there is no line between who is a student and who is not. We just simply all have to be there mm -hmm. for each other and all connect with each other. So as I said, we opened up to to sort of house people for a, a short period of time while that was helpful. Um, now we're doing a community art project that we're sponsoring that we take out. It's a, the Love at the Center project and it's a it's fabric strips that people can write on, whatever they wanna write, expressions of hope or of anger or of fear uh, or of terrible grief or of loss or writing the names of the people. Um, and of course, that moves beyond just the people that were lost. I had one community person say, 
uh, you know, I lost my dad recently. And I said, well, write that on the strip of fabric. And then those are woven together. And we are making a, a sort of a, a piece of public art out of all these strips of different colored fabric. And, and nice. the very center of it, the center fabric strips, I wrote love on them so that I can tell people that no matter what, this holds everything, but love is at the center of that. And so I've been taking that out. We did a, I took it out to a community vigil. Um, and I'll probably be out at uh, the Davis flea market the next couple of Wednesdays in the afternoon, taking it out to community members there in addition to taking it on campus and having students participate in it. So um, yeah, we all sort of want to connect with one another and hold each other's grief and support. One of the ways I've expressed this to students is uh, that that it does make a difference when you hold other people's grief and fear. We might want to just sort of shut away and say, my own feelings are all I can handle now. I can't, I can't stand thinking about Kareem's parents, for example, and what it is that they're going through. Yeah. And yet my students have gone out and have connected with Kareem's parents and have, have sort of borne some of the grief for them. And I'm so proud of them for being willing to do that. What I tell them is it doesn't make other people's grief go away, but maybe just maybe in the way God works with the world, it spreads it a little bit thinner. And what you hold uh, of grief and fear and anger, somebody else doesn't have to hold. And so the more of us that connect to do this, um, the more that we can, the more that we can help hold these things all for each other and that we can grow closer uh, to one another and and live in love more by doing this. And um, as I say, my students have had the courage to step into that into some profoundly meaningful ways. Two of my students were actually at, so Kareem was killed on a Saturday evening. Uh, and the next day, they we, we knew that a student had been killed by early Sunday morning, but we didn't know who it was. And when, it, when we found out who it was, um, that, early Sunday afternoon, a couple of my students went to buy flowers at Trader Joe's and to go over to the park where Kareem had been stabbed just to lay the flowers down as sort of a memorial and a remembrance. And while they were there, uh, Kareem's probably uncles were at the park and they said, um, Kareem's parents are coming over to the park. And they asked anybody who was there, if you could stay just to be here uh, it would mean a lot to the parents. And so my students, 19, 20 years old, stayed in that park to help support and witness and hold the terrible grief of these parents walking into the park for the first time. Uh, the mom just, of course, broke down and collapsed. Uh, and they stayed for that. And, um, you know, later went up and just sort of touched her hand and said, we remember Kareem. Uh, and he was a wonderful person. And that love, I mean, what else do you call that besides love? Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself through something like that if it weren't yeah. wanting to share and spread love in the community? And we have witnessed that in Davis over and over and over again with students, with community members, with people banding together. And um, it doesn't make it okay. And it doesn't answer the questions about why such horrible things happen. Um, but we know that God is in it because God is in us. And if we can give of love in terrible times, that means that God's presence is there in profound ways. Um, and my goodness, nobody ever wants to be a minister in a place that has to hold that sort of thing. But it is a tremendous honor to be 
part of tending and holding a community who then can reach out and tend and hold other people uh, in this sacred place that we all have with one another. Oh, thank you for all of that. I was going to add, my last question was, do you have a message for our listeners? But I think you just gave it. Yes, it is. <laughs> and we're grateful for all of that because your wisdom and your, I, the, even the student, encouraging the students to connect and, and it is, it's learning how to love. I mean, yeah. you know, it's really uh, learning how to love. Yes. So, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to close for now, but thank you so much for this most amazing podcast. And um, we look forward to our a continued connection with you. We're hoping uh, maybe in the fall, September, October, to have some of your students come to Spiritual Life Center for a Wednesday evening. Uh, and I've got some ideas. I'll run them by you privately, but <laughs> uh, yeah. hopefully we can do that because the more people are encouraged by others, the more love that's going to go out into the universe. Exactly. So, exactly. So thank you for what you do because you help hold and support and spread this to all the people that are listeners of your podcast, which is, is just wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today to explore a deeper understanding of our interfaith look at the world. This 2023 podcast will be aired the fourth Thursday of the month on Spiritual Life Center's website, slcworld.org, under Interfaith Connection Podcasts. You can also listen to our previous 24-plus podcasts at this same location. And we want to hear from you. So send us your comments, questions, or suggestions to me. That's Rachel Lyman at rachel24 at surewest.net. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-2-4 at S-U-R-E-W-E-S-T dot net. And let us remember as we go along our different paths that Gandhi once said, a peaceful exploration of all faiths is our sacred duty. Namaste.